Job chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down, and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So far in the book of Job, there have been speeches made between Job and his friends. After Job cried out in agony in chapter 3, His friends spoke out against him. And since then, Job has been defending his innocence while his friends have been proclaiming the justice of God. And in proclaiming God's justice, they have been calling into question Job's standing before God. Based on what he is going through and what he is saying, is he really right with God? This is the problem whenever we think of God's character in an incomplete manner. There are many who emphasize God as Savior so much so that it is at the expense of the truth that God is also judge. But that is not the problem with Job's three friends. Their problem is that they are proclaiming God as judge so much so that it is at the expense of the truth that God is also Savior, Redeemer, the just and justifier of all who have faith in him. And what is even more deceptive is that much of what they say about God is true. In many ways, it is doctrinally sound and quotable. And what is scary is that Job's three friends sound a lot like us. They sound like the church. They sound like sessions and pastures. If you ignore the context and just read their words, they sound like some of the preaching that you'll hear in church. 
The structure of this chapter is a basic structure for a sermon. You identify the problem and convict man of sin. You proclaim the holy and righteous God that man has to answer to. Then you call man to repent. Notice just in the first few verses, you can almost hear Paul agreeing with Zophar. But who are you, Job, to answer back to God? Or halfway through the text, Paul and his new buddy Zophar would be saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Job. And aren't there gospel promises for those who repent of their sins? Promises that sound familiar to what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have offered so far. Promises we hear echoed by the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus offers us a life of abundance, a life restored to God, much like Zophar. So are we to conclude that Jesus, Paul, and the disciples are in agreement with Job's friends and their theology? Were they right? Well, no. Well, how do you know that? Well, because God would rebuke them and tell them later on that they were wrong in chapter 42, verse 7. And if Job's friends are wrong, were Jesus and his disciples wrong? Well, no. Of course not. So how do we tell the difference between what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar says and what the prophets, Jesus, and the disciples have said? Well, it is the same answer to the question, how can we tell the difference between a good sermon and a bad sermon? Because two people can say the same exact thing as far as content goes, but one could be found completely wrong. So what is the difference? Well, the difference is found in context. Context is always key. That is usually the answer to most confusion over biblical interpretation. We must consider both historical, what was going on in the backdrop of Job, and the biblical context, what the whole Bible says. If you do all the word studies, like you, you find out what the word inscrutable means. You got the main point of the one verse that you're reading. Yet if you get the context wrong, everything will be wrong, especially when you apply it. Even Jesus' words, if taken out of the context of the entire Bible, you can get it wrong. That's why I find the red letter Bible to be pointless. Right? And why is this important for us to understand? Well, because Jesus had strong warnings for those who misused and misapplied the Bible. Specifically, the Pharisees and scribes. I bet much of what they taught on a daily basis or weekly basis was solid biblical truth. But much of it was either twisted, either out of ignorance or out of pride using scripture for their own purposes, or all of the above. And this is where Job's friends are as they resemble the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day, who refused to accept 
Jesus' words and who he was. And this would lead them to crucify the Lord of glory. They think they know what they know when they really don't know. And Job cannot persuade them otherwise. And now Zophar the Namathite joins in on the back and forth, adding ignorance unto more ignorance. And again, much like his friends prior to him, he presents a simple and cruel system of worldly religion. He begins with a false accusation that Job is guilty. Then he supports his accusation by appealing to the truth that God is infinite. And lastly, he calls Job to repent so that Job could be restored. So first, Zophar concludes that Job is guilty. And he sounds a bit angrier and more impatient than Bildad as he is even more blunt and straightforward. And his arrogance begins to show from the very beginning because he is pretty much saying, enough with this talk, now it is time to listen to me. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? We don't have to go on listening to this gobbledygook. He has spoken for so long, but it has no real substance. His words are empty. And if someone doesn't speak up, then we'll be made to think that he is right, but he is wrong. Should your babble silence men? See, Zophar is just trying to justify his own cruelty in response to Job. What he is saying is that what Job is saying is just babble. Paul warns about babble. We ought to avoid irreverent babble. And if Job continues to babble and he has the last word, then we'll look like the fools. Then he shows his so-called piety when he says that Job was mocking someone. Not sure if he is talking about mocking God or mocking his friends because it is not clear where Job intently mocks God. Uh, maybe he's referring to when Job said what was contrary to his friends that God destroys both blameless and the wicked. But he said to Job, when you mock, shall no one shame you. Guys, are we just going to let him get away with this? Zophar says, but no, I will step up and respond to his words. But if only Zophar was as good at listening as he was at speaking, because he obviously didn't listen to Job. Because not only is he falsely accusing Job of sin, but also he falsely accuses him of saying some things he never said. For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. First off, Job never claimed that his doctrine is pure. Job would be the first to admit that he doesn't know what is going on, much less get involved in a doctrinal dispute. He has been asking God why this whole time, because he doesn't know what God is doing to him. He thought he knew God, but now it feels as if he doesn't. He has made some claims that he knows what God is doing, and it is because of his sin. But then it is followed up by something like, if it is not him, then who is it? So there is doubt and confusion in Job's thoughts. He is a man in agony, working out his faith while at the same time suffering. But Zophar ignores Job's suffering to say, if you think you're going to write a book for seminary students on suffering, 
then you need to get your doctrine in order. The ironic thing is that Zophar is claiming his own doctrinal purity when it is him who needs his doctrine purified. Then he falsely accuses Job of saying that he was clean in God's eyes. But Job never said he was clean, which is another way of saying sinless. He did say he was blameless, but God also said he was blameless. And that's just another way of saying he was a believer. Blameless does not mean sinless. An example of this is that the qualifications for office bearers, uh, specifically for deacons, is to be blameless. But officers should be the first to confess that we are not sinless. Blameless is speaking of the marks and direction of someone's life. There will be some bumps in the road and imperfections, but it is speaking of someone being whole, well-ordered, and living from a heart that is devoted to God. That is what marked Job. And here, he has hit a big bump in the road. Yet he receives no sympathy from his friends. Instead, he receives accusation upon false accusation. But compared to the rest of his life, This is just a moment of impatience and lament. Imagine if God was as merciless as Job's friends. Because Zophar views Job as an unbeliever who mocks God with doctrinal statements rather than a child of God who is crying out to him. Though we wouldn't have Job and any of his friends on any committee to decide doctrine in the church, But this stresses the importance of believers having a listening ear to the cries of God's people. And Zophar's heart is revealed to us a bit more in places that we may tend to quickly skim over. Listen to what he wishes and hopes for Job. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. He wants God to respond to Job's so-called pure doctrine and sinless life. He wants God to answer Job as Job has hypothetically thought uh, throughout his speeches. If only I could speak to God, I would say thus and such. He wants God to answer all of Job's questions. Why was I born? Why am I even alive? But notice, not for Job's good, nor for the glory of God, or for God to vindicate himself. But he wants God to answer Job so that God would finally reject and condemn Job. He wants Job silenced. He desires ill for Job. He kind of sounds like Jonah. We're not even to wish this upon our enemies. He sounds like a Pharisee. And he says all this with a shroud of sound doctrine. He wants God to open his lips to Job so that he would tell him the secrets of wisdom. For God is manifold in understanding. And this is true. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the whole story. What Job is experiencing and what Job knows is only partial compared to what God knows. There is a hidden side of the story that Job hasn't seen yet. But notice how Zophar contradicts his own argument. He goes from saying... 
I wish God would just tell you the secrets of wisdom and why you're going through what you're going through. For he is manifold in understanding and no one knows what God knows. To claiming, by the way, I know what God knows. I understand. I am superior in my understanding of the secret wisdom of God and what God is doing to you. Zophar has all the answers. He says, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. In other words, Job, all that you went through from losing all of your property, your ranch, your wealth, your health, and all of your children, you ought to be happy because you deserve much worse because of your sin. It could have been worse because you are guilty. What arrogant confidence from so far. And this confidence is bred from ignorance. Now, it is true that no one on this planet gets what we truly deserve. But remember the context here. Context is key. Zophar did not know nor care to know what Job was really going through and whether or not Job was suffering because of sin. It is a biblical principle that no charge is to be brought up unless there is evidence of two or three witnesses. And notice, Job's friends make up three witnesses. And they were never eyewitnesses of sin prior to Job's suffering. They found him in his suffering. Rather than sympathy, they are armed with cruelty and a lack of understanding. And Zophar, in case you don't know, doesn't really know what God knows. Secondly, he supports his false accusation by, once again, appealing to sound doctrine. If you look at verses 7 through 12 on their own, you would say, this is pretty good stuff. I believe these verses are even quoted as proof texts for our confession and catechisms. Just read the second chapter of the confession and uh, question 7 of the larger catechism, where it asks, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just. Stop there. That's where Zophar would stop. He is not going to get to the part about God being most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Not yet, at least. Because to him, Job is guilty. So listen to what he says. Can you find out the deep things of God? No. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Well, no. It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? No matter what you do, no matter what you know or think you know, you will never be able to get to the bottom of who God is and what he knows. You'll never reach his height, depth, length, or breadth. God is infinite, meaning there is no beginning nor end to him. So his wisdom is infinite. He is everywhere, 
This is all beautifully true. And he continues by saying that the measure of the deep things of God are longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? In other words, who can stop him from judging anyone he pleases? Who can escape from him? No one. He is the most qualified judge to summon anyone to court. Why? Because he is all-knowing. For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? This is all true, but notice who he, he is talking about here. He is suggesting that Job is a worthless man whom God has passed by, imprisoned, summoned to court where he slammed down his gavel and sentenced him to his present sufferings. But to Zophar, Job is without understanding. So he says a proverb to describe where Job is in his reasoning. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt, that is a wild animal, is born a man. He's saying he'll never get understanding. Notice again how Zophar props himself up. He claims to understand what God is doing after he just said that no one is able to understand. He uses the truth of who God is. He uses a speech on God's incomprehensibility to make way for his own knowledge and wisdom. He is saying, see, God knows all things. God knows what he is doing. And under his breath, he is saying, and so do I. It's pretty clear. Job doesn't know what I know. But I know. Because I know God and I'm special. But the question is, does he even know God? And does he know his wisdom? Then he shares a proverb to demonstrate his wisdom. Now, Job also believed that God knows all things. Right? But that was the problem. Because he argued that since God knew all things, then he knew he was innocent. While Zophar says, God knows all things, so God knows that Job is guilty. Which is which? It's like being thrown in an argument between two sides who's trying to decide what side was God on during the Civil War. Right? And the easiest cop-out would be neither or you know, both. But we know, given the context, if you read ahead, go to uh, chapter 42, verse 7, Job was right. Job was right. And now we know that God knows the heart of all man. It is said of Jesus that he knew what was in man. God knows all things. But the question is, does Zophar know all things? Does he know the heart of Job? Does he know Job's standing before God? Does he even know what Job has been through? Well, that is what he is suggesting. He suggested that he knew that God was punishing him, and it could have been worse. He said he knew that he was a guilty, stupid man without understanding. Now, the truth is, nobody knows what is in the heart of man. 
I don't know what is in the heart of anyone in this building. I can only guess by what I hear and what I see. Even that is only partial. No one truly knows what is in the heart of man. Also, no one knows God's providence exhaustively. No one knows what will happen tomorrow. And no one knows all the reasons why God has allowed certain things to happen in history. Or why he has allowed certain things to happen in your life. But Zophar claimed that he knew both of these. Job's heart and God's providence in his life. But he should have learned from his own speech. He should have admitted and confessed his ignorance and lack of knowledge. He should have said, Job, I don't know what is going on with you. But I'm here to listen. I don't know what God is doing in your life. But I'm here to reassure you that God is almighty. He is good and he is just. He is all powerful, all wise, all knowing. So he knows what you are going through. He listens to your cry and he is our ever present hope. And he loves his children. All things work together for their good. Because God's incomprehensibility should be a source of comfort, not of despair for the believer. For the child of God. It should be something that we rejoice in. Because no matter what happens. God brings us through it. And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. And also suffering. Often runs parallel. With godliness and holiness. Consider the lives of the prophets. Consider the lives of the disciples and Paul. Consider the life of Jesus. But instead, filled with impatient arrogance and ignorance, Zophar and the others were no help to him. And in the meantime, they misrepresented God. So since he was so sure of his own knowledge and wisdom, Zophar tells him the condition to be kept, the offer of blessing which follows, in a word of warning. If he doesn't keep the condition. So thirdly he calls Job to repent. So that he could be restored. But the first condition. If you prepare your heart. You will stretch out your hands toward him. To prepare your heart means to direct your heart toward God. And stretching out your hands toward God symbolizes prayer. So he is calling him to repent. And then he would express that repentance in prayer. This is a true and good calling. But then he says, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. I believe at this point, Zophar is trying to guess what type of secret sin Job is guilty of because the word injustice carries the sense of some kind of extortion. Maybe Job used his office as a judge for unjust gain at some point. Now here is the offer of blessing. Uh, Back in chapter 10 verses 15 through 16, Job claimed that even though he is in the right, he couldn't lift up his head. And if his head was lifted up, God would hunt him down like a lion and work wonders against him. But Zophar promises that if he would repent or whatever sin he is guilty of and turn toward God, surely then you would lift up your face and without blemish. That means his integrity and dignity will be restored. 
You will be secure and will not fear the judgment of God. You will forget your misery. His health will be restored. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. All will be as it was. Its darkness will be like the morning from dark to light. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. No more nightmares and he will have a good night's sleep. Many will court your favor. That means his status in society and prestige will be restored. To summarize, he tells Job if he repents, he can expect things to go back the way they used to be. It sounds awfully good, but there are a couple of issues here. First, he counsels him out of ignorance. Because there is no evidence that Job is guilty of any secret sin. And there is no evidence that the reason why he is suffering is because of sin. We're going back to the drawing board here. His counsel is irrelevant. Secondly, the other problem is that, much like his other two friends, Zophar sounds a lot like Satan. Satan is the one who suggested that Job does not follow God for no reason other than that he is God, but Job follows God only for the rewards. Here, Zophar is giving him a reason to repent. See, the reason why the Christian repents is not so that we would have a good life now. And it is not just to escape hell. That is one reason, but it is not the only reason. We repent so that we would turn and enjoy a loving fellowship with God. We repent because God is God and He is worthy of our repentance. But Zophar repeats Satan, repent and you will become prosperous again. But if he doesn't, it will get worse for Job. So listen to his warning of judgment. Three things will happen to Job if he doesn't meet the condition of repentance. First, The eyes of the wicked will fail. This means his eyes will grow dim in death. Second, all way of escape will be lost to them. That is, he will miss his chance to escape the judgment of God. And just as Job reasoned in his earlier lament in chapter 3, his only hope will be in death, as their hope is to breathe their last. He warns he will be in so much agony, he will wish to die. But for Job, he's probably thinking, been there, done that. Now, his warnings would have been fine if he was speaking to a hardened, well-off, and physically healthy sinner. A sinner who was obstinate and did not want to hear about God. But that was not Job. Remember, context is key. That is why pastoral visitation is not the same as when I'm standing here preaching. Preaching deals with the context of the passage to give a general call to all people, while visitation deals with the individual in the context that they are in. And that has bearing on what I say to them. Context is key. It is important in knowing what to say 
and when to say it. This was not the time nor place for Zophar to say what he had said. And not only that, but what he said was also based on ignorance and rooted in sinful pride. Zophar should have been the one to receive his own warnings. Now what will shock Zophar later on will be the way he described Job's restoration will come true. It just won't go the way he wanted it to go. Because there will be other guilty parties involved. So the first thing we must come to realize in the Christian life is that doctrine is of utmost importance. And it is of utmost importance to keep it pure, clear, and sound. But also the truth that we will not always have all the answers. Uh, This is one of the greatest pressures of being a pastor or even being a Christian, is that many people expect you to have all the answers to all of life's mysteries. But we don't. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you become an expert in all areas of life, especially the mysterious. There are difficult situations, especially when it comes to tragedy, that we don't know what God is doing. But what we do know is that all roads lead to his glory and the good of his people. Because in this text, we see the danger of having only some of the truth mixed with ignorance, pride, and arrogance, and how it leads to false accusations and false conclusions. And we could misrepresent God and his word instead of a word of comfort we may give a word of condemnation. This occurs when you don't acknowledge your own limitations. So we consider that famous passage again. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us, the things we find in the scriptures, belong to us and to our children forever. And that is expressed in like, hey, I don't know what you're going through, And I don't know what God is doing by leading you through this trial. But I know what God's word says. And God has promised believers that he is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? And he has promised that he'd be with us despite what this clown Zophar has said. Now if you're not a believer then you're in a different place than Job altogether. And some of these warnings may be for you. Also, after hearing the first speech from each of Job's friends, we must conclude, it is not that God is unjust, but it is that their system of religion is unjust. They have a cruel system of religion. And it is a popular system. It is a system that most legalistic religions used to bind their people. It is a system that dangerously resembles much of mainline or mainstream Christianity today. It is filled with false promises and hopes. It promises the child of God will have some sort of worldly success and victory. And if not, you must be doing something wrong. It is a system later shared by the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day when they mocked Jesus on the cross 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The same system. If he is king, if he is the son of God, he would not suffer the way he does. Hence, why we put him on the cross in the first place. He was blaspheming. And there's others who look at the church. Church is struggling. If what they say is true and relevant, why don't people go to church anymore? The church is eventually just going to die out. Same system. So lastly, even though Jesus was nailed to a cross, was mocked and died, the promise of restoration and vindication was still there. Like Job, Christ didn't suffer because of his sins. But unlike Job, he suffered for our sins. And Job sins, and three days later, the divine Son of God is revealed, and the Son of Man is given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he would sit at the right hand of God to share in power and glory forever. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If so far, Witness what happened to Jesus on the cross. He would have concluded the worst and ignored the redemption found in Christ's sufferings. And how this Jesus was leading his people to glory. He would have settled for glory right now. And missed the glory that was to come. So how do you view Christ's sufferings? How do you view your own sufferings in this world? Is it foolish? Or is it your only pathway to glory? Is it hopeless? Is it the end of the road? Or is there redemption to be found in your own circumstances? Amen.